Look forward to retirement and avoid the pitfalls. Keep listening for ways to maximize your retirement income. More than money with the Popowich Carmelli Advisory Group, CIBC Woodgundy, on News Talk 770. Lifestyle matters. It's more than money. I'm Faisal Carmelli, my co-host here, Dave Popwich. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm well. How about you, Faisal? Oh, it's the winter. <laughs> Come on. It's the winter. Come on. We've had a great fall. Yeah, well, I, you know, that's looking back. You know, we always all, it's we had a great fine. fall. Now I'm just falling. <laughs> no, no, On the no. ice, on the snow. No. It's going to happen. Here we go. It's going to be fine. We're going to have a great winter. So you, you might remember that I have a new car, right? And so uh, this is... So I walked into the, uh, on Friday in the morning, uh, I walked into the kitchen, kids are there having their, their breakfast, and I'm like, this is my baby's first winter, and they're looking at me like I'm, you know, on something. Because yeah, they're like, not babies. And then they're like, <laughs> what do you mean? We've been, and I'm like, not you, my car. And they're like, <laughs> they were so offended that I didn't call them my babies anymore, but when I do call them my babies, they get offended anyway. So it was a it was a win win weekend for me. Well, see, and and so I'm well aware that you got a new car because you won't let me drive it. Now well, I understand why. Well, because you can't drive. I've seen how you drive, man. Uh, watch, so you know people on the sidewalk are scared of you when <laughs> yeah, you drive. That's so, fair. You know, that's a fair my fear. Car. Yeah, you got it. And you know these these are some of the things that we're going to be talking about today. You know, people buying cars, spending money, inflation is a big big issue. Yep. Um, we are seeing record numbers in inflation numbers. How is it going to impact retirement? We're going to talk about that. You know, there, there's a, a challenge for a lot of parents when they speak to their children about saving for the long term. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, the 10% rule. Put money aside, put 10% of your money right. every year. And that's a disciplined approach. It's been around for many years. We're going to actually show and share a different way of doing things now, considering all the restraints and, uh, and issues that happen as you go through your life from uh, buying a home, raising children, all the way to retirement, it's called the rule of 30. And we're going to talk about the rule of 30 and how parents can give some guidance to their children. In fact, they can even buy the book that we're going to bring the author on the show about that and, and really help. And, and you know, we've, we've touched on this one, brain science. Mm -hmm. There are six secrets to brain science to help you in your decision-making process when it comes to your portfolio or your retirement. Well, and it's an important piece to be doing at this time because this the fear can often lead to emotional and often bad decision making, right? And so this fear of inflation, we know we're having lots of, we're getting lots of questions about that creeping in. People are at risk of making bad decisions um, given the input. So that's gonna be an important so some piece. Some brain science behind that to help you. That. I think that's great. Um, this week in the markets was very interesting. Well, very wait. interesting and because of what's happening, we're hearing inflation numbers. It was tech earnings week. Yep. Uh, one of the largest uh, tech companies changed their name from Facebook to Meta, or Metaverse if you want to look at the whole company's uh, situation. Um, a lot of concentration on, on earnings, and I think finally we're there again. It seems like we have to wait for every quarter mm -hmm. for the market to realize that, you know, businesses are, are, in the, are, are making revenue, mm -hmm. and they're making profit, and they have an earnings per share. And that's what the price of a company should be based upon. Right not the hype and the assumptions of everything else. Right. So I like earnings season. I like when it comes to these these big companies, those who are software or product-based, um, hardware-based, because you get to see a bit more of what's happening. And it, there's a tinge of, hey, growth still matters. Well, it gets to the fundamentals, right? So in between earnings season, we run into this scenario, well, 
you know, if you're doing a report, um, you're, you're talking about gen general economic things and, and then people have to anticipate what that might mean for earnings. But when you get to earnings reports, you actually get the fundamentals of a company. Yeah. Right? And when we're investing in companies, we're investing in their future cash flows and growth and so on and so forth. So it is interesting, but it was a very interesting spread. Um, you know, you look at, at big tech, uh, there, there was, there's some big differences in terms of what those reports were this week, right? So what we're seeing is that there are inflation, supply chain issues are impacting companies very differently. Yeah. And so it's important now to understand what those impacts are going to be on each individual company. Tech companies got a lot of attention in the media this week because of earnings, but there were a lot of uh, energy companies mm -hmm. who had earnings this week. Uh, many of them have increased cash flow now, uh, not only because of the price, but because of what they've done on their expense control. So their cash flow is actually increasing, but their capital investment is not. Well, that's exactly right. These companies have gone through, particularly Canadian companies, have gone through years now of right-sizing. Right? They're efficient operators. And what we're seeing now is they're very uh, dynamic cash flow generators. Yeah. And so even in a week where you saw some volatility of oil prices, the commodity price, commodity price coming down certain days, and you're seeing oil Energy company shares. prices, the producers and yeah. operators, you know, still continuing to move higher. Some are starting a dividend, some are increasing yep. a dividend. They have, that tells you where's that capital going. They're not able right. to reinvest it into their own business. They are going to be passing it on to shareholders, right. which isn't a common theme for energy companies, they don't normally been labeled as a, as a dividend payer. Right. Um, uh, it's nice to have the dividend as an investor, but what, what that means is the money's not there to reinvest, so the return on investment isn't as high. When you have those issues of lack of capital investment by energy companies, that also says there's going to be an issue with supply. That's right. And because there's an issue with supply, mm, and there's demand, and demand increases as we get through this pandemic, Mm -hmm. that, and part of the inflationary story is energy and, you know, absolutely these things are connected. Now, what's interesting is we also got some economic data, uh, GDP out of U.S. and Canada. And interesting, slowing down, right? So third, car, third quarter GDP in the U United States came in well below expectation at 2%. We don't know the final uh, Q3 on Canada yet, but if you look at the data we, we received this past week, it would indicate somewhere around a 1.9, 2% annualized uh, growth rate. So below expectation and slower certainly than the second quarter. So the COVID impact, supply chain impact, a bunch of things going on, people's confidence to go out and spend, right? But you know what's interesting is take the U.S. So we get this conversation around stagflation yeah, coming. Yeah, I was going to mention that to you. Yeah. Right, okay. Well, um, the United States now at the end of the third quarter, even with its disappointing uh, GD, uh, sorry, Q3 GDP print, the economy is now larger than what it was pre-pandemic. We're 1% in Canada, below pandemic total activity in our in our uh, country. So interesting conversation to talk about stagflation. Interesting about inflation. Um, is it transitory? Is it taking longer? All of these things. Growth is still happening. The headlines can often skew people in a, in a different direction. They get this emotional reaction, right? And a lot of a lot of individuals are reading the headline issue. Not only just the headline on a newsprint or on a yeah. on a on, on the website, but they're just hitting the headline issue. And and let's say energy companies going up. Uh, we have, this is the first month that we've seen a 10% increase in energy prices. Right. This is a, you know, an 18 year high in, right. in, in inflation, like those headline issues. When we start to drill down and we're going to discuss this uh, later on the show is inflation and the impacts to the individual and going through retirement. 
we're going to discuss how you know these types of issues and how you react to them right is what you'll dictate on your portfolio and right. so how do you have that approach i think what's with with the number of hours of research we've been doing just this week alone right like the amount of time we've been spending reading and i don't think people understand what happens before you and i go on the, the radio or on tv to to give the news reports and so forth you know, we're reading around 300 pages of data, research, information prior to just getting on in the morning. Like oh, it's hours my, a day. Yeah, my hours. 5 a.m. Yeah. is reading 300 pages of data just right. to get that information. I also do that at night, yep. right? So it, this is why I don't have a life, right? This is because I'm reading all this stuff. But when you're starting to read, you're looking for trends, you're looking for information, looking for research, yep. you're looking for opportunity. Yep. And more importantly, we're looking for risk. Yeah, and don't forget that part. People always forget the risk mitigation. I want to make sure that when we're investing, we're not taking on substantial amount of risk for right. every incremental 1% rate of return in the portfolio. Right. Because that's going to actually bring the higher risk when things turn, when things turn, because yeah. they will. Yep. It's a huge impact to the individual. And so I think when we look at the amount of work that's being done today by portfolio managers like you and me, you know, it's, it's not just what happens... When, when you see us on TV or hear us on radio at 7 a.m. and and goes all the way to, let's say, 5 o'clock, it's the hours outside of that that That's we're right. doing a lot of work, yeah. right? And, and, and those hours of research and, and reading and, and working and talking to professionals and money managers around the world... Right. That's where the part comes into play because it's not like two people can, can do it all, but I think the research part... And in our research, we're seeing a lot of different pieces of information that bring up risk that we need to be careful of. One yeah. of it is inflation. That's right. And how to position. And you can profit and protect, right, from yeah. any anything. Inflation happens to be the hot topic right now. But there are certain things you can do in portfolios. And so it's important that you're dynamic and nimble to handle those things. we got to talk about all of this stuff, right? Not just portfolio positioning, but how does that feed into the larger lifestyle goal so that inflation doesn't erode your, uh, you know, your purchasing power and you can't Live the life you want. Yeah, it's inflation and taxes are the two biggest expenses that's going to happen to you throughout your retirement. Right. You know, we often talk about, Faisal, um, engagement uh, when you move into retirement. And I don't mean getting engaged. <laughs> <laughs> what I mean is you need to stay involved in something mentally, right, that keeps you, keeps your brain working and keeps you with a certain level of, of positive stress to keep things moving forward. And I'm not sure everybody knows how to do that or what that means. Well, when we were looking up this whole topic, we found out there's some brain secrets out there. Yep. And so let's share these secrets. They shouldn't be secrets anymore. They should just be public information. Let's get it out there as much as we can. And we've got a great guest here. We've got Dr. Bryn Weingart. She's a business brain expert. I have seen her on many different times online. She's a great speaker has great knowledge on this whole topic, so I'm glad to have her on the show. Yep. Dr. Bryn, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Well, let's let's talk a little bit about, I guess, um, business brain science. Uh, what, so tell us a little bit about what, what you actually focus on, what's your expertise in. So what I look to do is, is you know, it's a, a derivative of neuroscience, but it's an area called applied neuroscience, which is to take what is in the lab and otherwise inaccessible to regular folk 
and make it accessible and make it applicable so that you can use what we are learning about your brain and about neuroscience to actually apply it to your life. And so I, I say business brain science because typically who I'm talking to are people who are in business. So my two sort of areas, pillars of learning, I call them, are in motivation and productivity. So what can you know about your own brain to use it better to be more productive and motivated? And then in persuasion and influence, what do we need to know about the brain to help understand our customers, our clients, and how they make decisions. All right. Well, let's explore that. You alluded earlier uh, in this segment to the fact that there are some secrets here. Yeah. Right? Dr. Bryn, we're going to put you on the spot here because we'd love to shed some light on some of these secrets. So what are, I think there's six brain science secrets that you've identified. I'd love to hear what they are. Well, yeah, so I mean, there's probably more than that. I think when we look at the pillar of learning around decision making and how it is that people use their brains to come to conclusions to make life decisions, as example, there are six what I call neurofunctional areas that we look at that loosely, you know, I then sort of map on secrets about, but the idea that, you know, it sort of loosely follows the neuroanatomical form of your brain. So just imagine that it's not exactly how your brain would look if I peeled it like an onion, but it's almost like an onion that I unravel in order to understand really, you know, what the layers are that that are involved in how you and I make all of our decisions in life. And so one of the first layers, if you will, is this idea that when we used to talk, you've probably heard the adage, uh, you know, you, you're only using 10% of your brain. You've probably heard that before. That came from 1980s research yeah. that said that 10% of your brain was was conscious and the rest was non-conscious. And that got completely blasphemized in the media and, and taken to mean that you weren't using the other 90%. You're absolutely using it. But further, we now know that you're not using even 10% consciously. It's something closer to 1%. And, and some of the neuroscience scholars out there think less and less all the time. So most of our brain is actually subconscious in nature. And that means that you don't have direct control over it. And so, you know, it also means that and we can show in an fMRI as an example, if I ask you a question, like what's two plus two, I can show that non-conscious parts of your brain answer that question and then feed it to language centers that then answer the person that asked the question. So we know that your brain is actually coming to conclusions sort of on its own in, in areas you don't have direct control over, and then it's feeding it to you consciously. That explains so much about phasal now. <laughs> Um, and so, you know, that has ramifications, though, for how we think about the decisions that we're making, how we think about what, you know, what do we need to know about, especially when it comes to finance and, and financial decision making, and especially as we age, uh, which is where my, my research started, actually, you know, a decade ago, was in the aging brain. What we know then is that we have to be careful about some of the schema, the schemata, the ways that our subconscious is sort of pre-programmed, if you will, to, to make decisions, because it, it, as it turns out, no matter how it feels, we are actually so much more subconscious. And so when we ask people to do what we call metacognition or introspection, we also show in the research that they're incorrect very typically about, you know, if I asked you how much of your brain are you using or how conscious are you or how much of that decision did you consciously make, they will report high numbers. And, and that's false. We know that, in fact, you know, those, those decisions were made subconsciously. Uh, so that's the first secret. The second is the idea that we used to believe that the visual cortices were very small, like not small, but they were, you know, that protrusion at the back of your head. There's this area that is sort of on babies, especially you can really see it. It's like a bun. Uh, we used to think that was all of the visual processing yep. centers. And now we know that actually that's a lot more dispersed. So the brain is a lot less 
um, organ-like, like almost like your organs in your body. We, we used to believe that there were sort of almost clusters and organs and areas. Now we know it's a lot more network-based so that it's actually a lot more uh, dispersed throughout the brain and we don't have as specific neurofunctional areas as we thought. So your decision-making is a lot more visual than we once would have thought as well. And so that has ramifications certainly for this idea that like seeing is believing and that you will over use the heuristic of visual processing and things like social proof and watching what other people do which skews your your decision making it makes it seem there's a bias there effectively uh, so visual areas much bigger than we once thought the third one is the idea that and this actually took us a while because not only is it not neurofunctional we had a very hard time figuring out what, a, what basically 80% of all neural networks are dedicated to social processing. And at first it, it didn't make sense. Like it was a very hard thing to understand why even a visual area or cortice would make social decisions or be involved in social processing. And it is. And so what we found in sort of the last seven years is that the brain is actually highly social. And so I joke sometimes in my talks, you know, about the fact that Maslow was completely wrong. Physiological needs are not first, social needs are first. And so our decision-making is in fact more social than we ever thought. And, and all of that, you know, the, the neural processing that, that is involved means that again, there again, our social circumstances and, and influences are way more heavy in terms of our decision-making, the heuristics, the schema, the schemata for what goes into why we do what we do in our lives way more social than we ever thought. So, so that's relevant too. The next is the idea that, uh, you know, our brains are highly emotional, right? That basically we have social threat and reward stimuli that we assess. And then we have, it's not quite as simple as a binary system, but then we have emotions about that. And so if you, I can, you know, almost prove it to you. If I said, what, think of the last time you were frustrated or angry or irritated, it almost always was because someone did something, right? Like it was a social stimuli that caused you to have an emotion. And people will often say to me, you know, Dr. Brin, I really don't wanna feel emotions anymore. I really want them. I really want to turn off these negative emotions. But what I say is that emotions are actually highly functional. They're designed to make you uncomfortable enough that you will be motivated to act in your own self-interest. And so very purposefully, emotions are designed to make you feel like you're so uncomfortable you need to do something. Uh, and so that also plays into how we make decisions. And I often say, you know, you've got to sit with the discomfort because a lot of people will make knee-jerk gut responses, really reflexive decision-making because they feel something. And it's, uh, you know, you can definitely change your mind. It's very hard to stop feeling what you're feeling. Uh, and so for that reason, people will trust how they feel over what they think. And that also means that we have to sit sometimes with those emotions in order to objectify them enough to have control over them. Because just because they are designed to make us feel and act in our own self-interest doesn't mean that they're always the right decision. And then the emotional centers of the brain we see start- Dr. Brin? Yeah. Sorry, we've got less than a minute left before we have to go to commercial break. So let's hammer the last two out so everybody can get the full six from you on all these sure. secrets. <laughs> you got it. Wow, time flies. Uh, and so then this, the final one, the final two really is the idea that emotional centers then lead into uh, what we call the mirror neuron system, which we see actually gets better over time uh, in terms of its acuity and its ability to help. And basically that is... This is exactly as it sounds, it's a system that allows for you to understand and x-ray what another person is thinking. And so when we think about, you know, how do we make decisions? How do we make sure that caveat emptor, we're making the right 
financial decisions, uh, it's we really have to look people in the eyeballs because that's the, the the eyes are not the window to the soul; they're the window to the mirror neuron system. And then finally, there's this area in the brain called the TPJ. I call it the belief button, but it's basically the area that is in, in nanoseconds will make decisions for whether or not you like something, you believe in something, you want to buy something. And that, unfortunately, that region is very taxed, and so it's an area that you have to be cautious about when it comes to how it is that you come to conclusions and how it is that you make your decisions. You know, Dave, we got to bring Dr. Bryn back because I think part of this is how people react to things that are happening economically in the markets with their retirement, with their family, and how they, how they, how they react on other levels. I think Dr. Bryn, we got to bring you back for that. Unfortunately, we're just, we're just out of time. And so thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Good luck. Uh, You know, Faisal, we get lots of requests for people. We specialize obviously in transitioning to or living in retirement. We get lots of requests from people about how do I get there? How do I save for retirement? Or, you know, how do I teach my kids to prepare and save for retirement, right? And we thought, that's a good topic, yeah. right? Because the, the it's complicated also when you're growing your wealth, you're buying houses, you've got kids to raise and all the expenses associated with that. How do you do it? And what I like about, you know, our guest that's coming on right now is that we break it down into an a, a digestible bite that you can actually work with, and and he's been a reoccurring guest mm. on our show. You know, he's he's now the author of the the book called The Rule of Thirty. Mm-hmm. Fred Vertiz, thank you so much for for joining us, Fred. Thank you for that, and we're really interested in this. So why don't we just get right into this because we like simple rules, we like simple <laughs> ideas of how things work, especially when it's a complex situation like retirement. So, Fred, uh, tell us about the Rule of Thirty. Uh, okay, so uh, the way it started was I had this quest to figure out what is the standard rule of thumb for saving for retirement. Um, and it turned out to be not, not obvious at all. And I checked with all the banks, I checked with uh, online and so on. And, and while there's some kind of vague uh, feeling that it must be about 10%, um, I think David Schultz came up with that over 30 years ago. The question is, how has that changed over time? CPP uh, has been expanded. Real interest rates have, have gone, uh, have dived. They've taken the nosedive down to zero percent. So, uh, what is it today? So, I actually asked a whole bunch of experts, and they gave me all kinds of very different numbers. In other words, uh, there was no further ahead. So, I wanted to know that number first of all, and I do come up with a number in the book. But then the second question was, well, can people actually save a constant percentage of pay? Can they uh, do that throughout their lifetime? And is that actually the best way to save? So I analyzed it through the eyes of a, a young couple, and I took them through their careers, uh, the fact that they eventually would have children, they eventually pay off their house, and uh, they, they'd reach retirement age at some point, to see as to how their spendable income would change. So I figured rather than trying to, to stabilize the saving percentage, I mean, it's always very neat, but it's a little OCD, I guess, to figure out, well, I always have to save 10 or 12 or 14% of pay every year, uh, it seemed it might make much more sense to try to stabilize one's spendable income. It made no sense to be a pauper for a few years in your life and then to be to have uh, an embarrassment of riches toward the end because you maybe oversaved earlier on. So the rule of 30 is all about trying to stabilize um, your spendable income throughout your career and also into retirement as well. And so what it means is that the percentage of your gross income that you save toward retirement, plus put into your mortgage, plus certain other special expenses, which I can define in a minute, the sum of those three should be about 30% of pay. 
as a result, it means that you no, know, it's actually not a lot. If you think early on in your career, when your income is reasonably low, you bought your first house, you're making uh, mortgage payments. It's possible that the mortgage payments themselves will pretty much uh, equal 30% of pay. In which case, you can't really save anything at all. And so, I wanted people not to not to worry excessively because there may be a few years in their lives when they can't save. Now, I mentioned special expenses. These are things which are uh, absolutely necessary, fairly short-term in duration. They may last a few years, not they won't last your whole career. And um, and so they are crowding out your, your ability to save. Now, you could always just cut out you know, eating eating food uh, for a while, but you don't want to do that or buying any clothes. You want, to, you want to be able to still have some kind of reasonable lifestyle. So those reasonable, one a great example of that would be daycare expenses. There'll be a time in your life when both spouses still want to work, the only way they can do so is by putting the kids in daycare, which can be very expensive. So I, I, I have children in, uh, in their 30s now, and I know a lot of young people in their 30s, and I just know that when it comes to a combination of daycare, uh, mortgage payments and such, they really haven't got any real capacity to save. And so they're going to roll their eyes when uh, some older guy who's got all kinds of excess income or excess assets is going in, but they have to be saving 10 or 15% of the pay every year. So this is, this is where the challenge has come over time. I've, I recall my father and mother telling me, mm-hmm. you know, uh, the wealthy barber telling mm-hmm. me to put money aside. And I remember very early in my career, it was tough. Mm-hmm. It was a big challenge and that pressure from the generation above because they have the assets and, yep. you, sh- and you could be better off than right. me if you just did this because when I was your age, I couldn't. I like this rule of 30 and it does basically mean, and Fred confirmed this for me, that as you pay down your mortgage and then when that gets paid off, you'll have more money of that 30% to put towards savings and that will then fill that, that gap that you need for assets to live off of in your retirement. Um, have I got that assumption correct? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So the question that normally comes up uh, in this situation, we've seen this with many people's adult children, is that the spending doesn't ever go down. It's the mortgage that gets remortgaged. Mm. Uh, They use the equity in their home as an ATM uh, to to renovate, build, get a bigger home. And that 30%, because that's what's been ingrained in their head for what's called total debt service ratio of what you can borrow up to, and we're seeing many individuals reach that, that max. In those circumstances, I know that's not the ideal scenario, it does happen to many Canadians, what do you think is some ideas that, that parents should be sharing with their children, or you should be sharing with these ad- adult children on how do you avoid that pitfall, that, that 30% of your money, that rule of 30, will all be pay, paid towards debt and never to savings? Well, first of all, 30% of saving, I'm sorry, 30%, it encompasses mortgage payments. It doesn't encompass uh, using the equity in your home in order to, to, to finance a, a world cruise. Uh, that, that would be spending over and above, and it's uh, not part of the rule of 30. You still have to find some way to put 30% into mortgage payments plus retirement saving in that case. Um, now, the idea about uh, remor- uh, sorry, trading up the houses, my, my couple actually, in my example in the book, actually do trade up once in their lives. They trade up about 10 years after after uh, they first get married, and it seemed to be like a reasonable amount, like the time to, to be waiting. And they only trade up at one time, and in their 40s. Um, and, and as a result, their mortgage payments do go up. They don't go up quite to 30% of pay, but they go very close to it. And then over time, because mortgage payments tend to be a constant dollar percent dollar amount, uh, and, and pay is going up um, in, in both in real and absolute terms over time, 
um, they, uh, that percentage becomes lower and lower, they have more and more capacity to save. But here's the thing too, uh, I, I kind of regard saving as, uh, sorry, by retirement saving as versus putting money into a mortgage as being almost equivalent. They're both a way of saving in order to have a more secure future. Now you might say, well, you know, I, I want to have this pretty big house, I'm going to you know, be putting all 30% in there so I don't actually have any room to put money into retirement saving. But then you have all that equity in the house. As long as you're not using that equity, you know, in other words, to finance a, a more lavish lifestyle, you actually are putting money into the house. You can always you can always trade down later on in life. And many people I do know have actually done that. Uh, nobody seems to admit trading down because they have to, but uh, they do it for lifestyle reasons usually. So we have many um, parents who have adult children listening and watching right now, and they want to give some wisdom to their children. <laughs> Now, I'd like the, the Fred wisdom to be shared with them. Give them three tips that they can share with their children so they can have a good conversation and they can, can reach their goals long-term, the, not only when it comes to buying real estate and living in their homes, but also saving for retirement. Uh, I'm sorry, I guess you cut out just for one minute, so there was a question I missed it. Yeah, top, top three tips you'd like to give to people uh, with this whole rule of 30. Okay, so the top, top tip would be don't forget about retirement. It actually is important and you do want to be saving throughout. Um, you don't want to be financing a more lavish lifestyle than you can actually afford during your, your career. Having said that, you want to, you want to still have a reasonable uh, lifestyle and, um, and so you ought to be comfortable with the fact that as long as you're a responsible person um, and, and saving a, an adequate amount that you can actually have a, a better, better lifestyle in your 30s. Uh, through the rule of 30 and um, and still have a, a spendable income that's rising in both real and absolute terms uh, throughout your life and right into retirement. That's actually quite doable. And, and inherent in all this is, or implicit in all this, is that you still want to do all the right things with your money. In other words, you, know, you want to invest where the, the fees are reasonable, you want to have the right kind of asset mix, and all that's covered in the book as well. Fred, I want to thank you for that. Um, now, the uh, the rule of thirty is the book out now. Uh, that's a really good question. The book was released officially October the nineteenth uh, because of COVID. I understand there have been some distribution issues, but the book uh, you you can actually order the book on Amazon, and uh, and if it's not currently available in the Chapters Indigo store, you can certainly get the book online from Chapters Indigo, and it'll be in the stores any day now. Terrific. Fred Vitis, thank you very much for joining us. It's my pleasure. Getting a lot of questions about inflation um, and, and, and about whether or not it's, you know, it's destroying a person's ability to live the life that they want. So let me kind of paint the picture of um, some of the comments that I'm hearing from uh, viewers and listeners of this show. Um, Faisal, I have um, a rate of return on average in my, in my retirement uh, let's make up a number here, 6%. And inflation is 4%. Yep. So now I'm only making 2% before taxes. Right. After taxes, I'm only growing by 1%. I have a problem with that. My If inflation continues to grow up, I'm going to, or my portfolio is not performing better than inflation and after taxes, I'm actually going broke safely. Mm. And so this is a problem. And so what are we going to do about this? Like what, what's the solution to that problem where inflation goes up, portfolio performance may not be as, as good as you'd like it to be, or taxes are too high, and here comes all the, yep. the math behind it to justify the, the emotion that's going on.
What are your thoughts about when those those kind of comments from some of our listeners? What do you, what do you think are those those issues? Those are the the solution or or response that you have when it comes to those kind of questions? Well, so so inflation. Um, you could take out the word inflation if that's what people are emotional about right now, Faisal, and you could put anything else. Let's say inflation is low, but you get a negative year like 2018. Portfolios go down, but inflation's low. Still got a negative return, right? So. I think the first thing is disconnect emotionally from this idea of inflation um, and think about the uh, the impact. So first of all, is inflation going to be running at 4% forever? Remember, the last 11 years, the biggest problem central banks have had is to try to get inflation to 2%. We couldn't get there. Yeah. So it's at 4%. It's going to run for 4% for the rest of your life. Is it is it actually impacting your life? Right, so, so we talk about the academics of inflation, the impact on portfolio, but I've had several conversations, and I know you have with people, about where is, where is inf- inflation impacting your life? Well, I go to the grocery store. Yeah. Okay, I fill up at the gas tank, yeah. my gas tank. Okay, got it. We're seeing inflation in all those areas. But have you had to cut your life? Have, have, are you not living the life that you wanted to, right? Yeah. Because there's other areas that you're not seeing that in, or you're not actually participating in inflation, it's not affecting you. So. Yeah. It's the emotional, academic, and actual impact, right? There's there's three different things on people. And it depends on the person that you're talking to, you know, as to as to what that impact is. But but that's that's this is the conversation we're having, right? It's yeah. it's these three elements. What so about you? There's there's two parts to this inflation piece. And I think you've you've addressed one of them where it says, you know, we're at an 18-year high in inflation. First of all, that four plus percent inflation rate is top-line inflation, not core inflation. So mm-hmm. let's not bore our audience with all the economics, but that 4% is a year-over-year number from last September of 2020 to September of 2021. Right. Okay? It is a first reading. It's not official. But let's go with the average over this year. Right. Start from January to now. The right. average inflation rate, top-line, yep. just, abo- just slightly above 2%. Right. Okay. Let's go in history over the last 10 years. 20 years, 30 years, whatever time frame, yep. greater than one, right, right. Uh, you're getting in, this, in, the, in the low single digit. Right. So one, two, um, rare in times that we've seen 3% consistently. So that, there's that for first part. The second part is on uh, Stats Canada's website, mm-hmm. there is a personal inflation rate calculator. Right. And I recommend people to actually take a look at this. And when I put my numbers in, Dave, and um, you know I spend some money here and there. The pandemic hasn't stopped my spending. Yeah. Okay. It just shifted. Why? Yeah, you why. found ways to spend. Oh, yeah. for sure. Yeah. And so I put my my numbers in, and I find that my personal inflation rate for the month of September year over year was two point two percent. And yeah, I'm lazy, so I I call in skip the dishes. Mm-hmm. I don't cook as much, so there's an inflation number there. And yeah, my behaviors changed from buying services as much as buying products right. during the pandemic. Right. There's a shift happening to me for me personally. I'm buying more services than products. But even all those things that I put in, it was well below the inflation rate of, of, uh, of what Canada or Stats Canada produced. Right. So I, I ask people, and, and listeners of the show have approached me about this topic, and I say, have you calculated your own inflation rate? Now, we have very few people that we know that have kept a spreadsheet of all their expenses of every dime 
since you know the early 80s, and they keep it on a spreadsheet and update it every, every month. They know their real inflation rate, but many Canadians don't really know their personal inflation rate. Oh, and, and, and just ask the question, you're, you're right about all that stuff, and, and if you don't want to do a calculation, because you're not inclined to do it, have you cut your lifestyle? Have you, have you had to cut your lifestyle? Cut your lifestyle, or are you short at the end of the month? Yeah, or are you short at the end of the month? That's right. And I don't, We're not finding that that's the case for people. Yeah. Anecdotally, we're not seeing it. So right. I actually want to ask our, yeah. our viewers this and listeners. This is of interest, yeah. You know, are you finding that you have to cut things out of your budget because things have gone up in price? Or are you short at the end of the month because of inflation? Right. So you're buying the same amount of groceries you're buying, you're filling up the tank regularly like yep. you normally done. Yep. You have the normal behavior in life, but you end up short 4% or whatever the number is. Or are you saying, I'm not going to spend on this because you know the price right. of bacon's gone up, so right. I'm going to buy bacon more. Right. Than a, and that, that's just that's what, that's how the economy works. But I would love to know from you, what are, what's the change of behavior happening in yeah. your in your situation, so we can kind of get a good sense of what's going on. We've had CEOs approach us and say, hey, what are you finding up with inflation with your with your clients, yeah. Dave and Faisal? Yeah. And it's interesting because now the CEOs are going, hang on, we're not seeing what Stats Canada is saying or what the media is talking about. Right. We're seeing something different in our company. Yeah. What's really happening on the ground? So they've come to us and asked us right. questions about that. And listen, we're not saying that inflation isn't real. We are seeing some uh, some prices increased. You know, we're seeing costs get passed along. There's no question some of that will be transitory. There's no there's no doubt that some of it is likely to be persistent. Right? That's just part of the overall market. But I think you have to be very careful about the short term thinking, right? Whether it's inflation or whatever the other problem is, right? That that's going to present itself. The short term thinking is really where people get themselves locked in. Uh, to a thought process that may end up in a bad result. Yeah, and that goes back to the, some of the secrets for the brain that we That's talked right. about earlier today. Um, here is the one thing that we do know, that inflation, no matter what the number is, 2% to 4%, whatever the number is, will erode right. your purchasing power over time. That's right. So you do need growth in your portfolio yep. as you draw more income. You also need to make sure that you're not subject to those types of investments that have high volatility just to get your income exactly. because inflation is getting higher but your interest rates are still all-time lows yep. and you can't find a place to harbor yourself from those types of high-risk uh, uh, investments so you're going to take on more risk but there is a solution to it there is a way to bulletproof your retirement and we're going to walk you through our solution on tuesday november 16th 7 p.m live online go to morethanmoneyradio.com to register well, on behalf of Faisal, myself, Dave, thanks for tuning in to another edition of More Than Money, and we look forward to seeing you and chatting with you next week. David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli are portfolio managers and investment advisors with CIBC Woodgundy in Calgary. The views of David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli do not necessarily reflect those of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Clients are advised to seek advice regarding their particular circumstances from their personal tax and legal advisors. If you are currently a CIBC Woodgundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Woodgundy is a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc., a subsidiary of CIBC and a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund and Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada. 
David Popovich and Faisal Carmeli are portfolio managers and investment advisors with CIBC Woodgundy in Calgary. The views of David Popovich and Faisal Carmeli do not necessarily reflect those of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Clients are advised to seek advice regarding their particular circumstances from their personal tax and legal advisors. If you are currently a CIBC Woodgundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Woodgundy is a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc., a subsidiary of CIBC and a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund and Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada.